0: <laughs> Hi. Hi. <laughs> welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Alicia and I'm Charlotte, and we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and women in general. And
1: welcome back for our bonus episode. This episode is a little different than our usual episodes and content. And this is because this episode is actually based on a live event that Alicia and I held between our two medical schools. At this event, we discussed a recently published article on female physicians' prestige and specialty gender
0: inequality with
1: two amazing physicians from the University of Michigan.
0: Yes. um, And some side notes about this episode. The structure is a little different than usual because of the live aspect and the way the discussion was shaped. So we mentioned the chat a couple of times in the audio, and that's because of our audience, um, because our audience consisted of fellow med students who were asking questions um, in the chat pertaining to the discussion we were having. So we wanted to just be clear about that so no one's confused. So, this was
1: a really fun event that we held. We got a lot of really good feedback on it. And we're really excited to share this event with you as an episode. Um, so, let's get into things. Let's
0: do it. Yes. And we are so excited to be having this conversation today about medical specialty segregation and the impact it's having on different fields. But before we do that, we want to introduce our wonderful guests, Dr. Erin McKean and Dr. Deb Berman. So Dr. McKean is an associate professor of otolaryngology with a focus on head and neck surgery and neurosurgery. She is the associate chief of rhinology and skull Base surgery at Michigan Medicine and is director of the cranial Base surgery program here. She is also the assistant dean of student services at the University of Michigan Medical School. And so welcome, Dr. McKean. And then Dr. Deb Berman is an Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology in the Division of Maternal and Fetal Medicine. She is an integral part of the Fetal Diagnostic and Treatment Center team where she works in high-risk obstetrics, prenatal diagnosis, and fetal surgery and therapy at Michigan Medicine. She's also the faculty director of M-HOME at the University of Michigan Medical School. And we are so excited to have her and Dr. McKean. Thank you so much for both taking time out of your day to be here. So, the topic of today's discussion is prestige in medical specialties
1: and how specialties that are gaining representation of women are losing that prestige in their earnings. But before we begin, we want to clarify that we are referring to females today as individuals who identify as women. However, we do want to acknowledge that multiple identities may resonate with this topic because this problem is intersectional. So although we are not able to dive into all of those identities today, please feel free to reach out to us if you want to have a conversation about it and explore that topic a little bit more.
0: Perfect. So now that we've talked about that a little bit, we are going to dive into this paper and this topic a little more. So this paper that we're discussing today was recently accepted to the Journal of the Association of American Medical Colleges, and it's titled Trends in and Implications of Specialty Gender Segregation in Medicine. We are going to give you some highlights of the paper right now so that we can be grounded in the rest of the conversation. Um, and we can all be on the same page moving forward into the discussion. Throughout the 1900s, women have been gradually entering the workforce, and data over time show that once a significant number of women enter a previously male-dominated profession, the profession experiences a rapid change into female predominance. And this phenomenon is actually known as tipping, And it occurs not only in medicine, but across all sectors. But within medicine, the article discusses a lot about stereotypical beliefs about gender that can explicitly and implicitly shape the career choices of a lot of medical students. And so maybe you all listening have thought about what specialty you want to enter or what specialty you're thinking about entering and how... Good of a fit you are for that specialty, how well that specialty fits with your personality and your goals and your needs. But have you ever thought about how gender has played a potential role in the fit of your specialty and the choice that you're going to make or have made? The main finding of this article was that as the presence of female physicians in a specialty increased, the salary of that specialty decreased overall. Yeah, and so some of the points that
1: supported this final finding, which Alicia and I both were really shocked by, were mostly based on the comparison between these gender dominated specialties and tracking their earnings across time. So first up, we have this slide up with two graphs, and these graphs are comparing the mean physician salary of a specialty over time. And the gray line through the graph shows the number of women in the specialty um, over that period of time. So in that first graph, um, it is representing pediatrics, which is seen as a highly female predominant specialty. And it has had a 20% drop in earnings as more women have entered the specialty over the last 40 years. Whereas in orthopedic surgery, which is characteristically a more male predominant specialty, it has had a 10% increase in salary, but there has been no change in the proportion of women over time. This trend can also be seen when looking at OBGYN, which was previously not a female-dominated specialty. However, over time, as women have entered the profession, it has become female-dominated due to tipping. And since then, there has been a 20% drop in salary. Whereas in urology, there has been no change the number of women in the salary has stayed pretty much the same. And it's important to mention that even with all factors controlled that could affect a woman's salary, such as the hours she works, her leadership roles, her education levels, et cetera, there is still this $20,000 unexplained pay gap. And additionally, these trends in salary inequality within female-dominated specialties are seen across all specialties of prestige and salary. So it's not just those female-dominated specialties that you would expect, such as pediatrics or OB, but it's also seen in general medicine in internal medicine and in general surgery. So in the end, this article really stressed how important it is to recognize the outcomes that gender bias has on all specialties. And it stressed that only through addressing gender bias within health systems, within our medical school counseling services as we decide what specialties to go into and addressing patient perspectives that we can actually start to work towards gender equality in medicine. But now the big question is, where do we go from here? Well, why did we learn this? Why is this important? What can we do with this knowledge now? And especially what can we do as medical students and what can we consider as we move forward in choosing our own specialties and
0: in our careers in general? And so we wanted to start by asking our two wonderful guests what their thoughts are on the topic. So what are your initial thoughts and what are you thinking?
2: I'm happy to go. um, It's interesting. I remember in undergrad, actually hearing about this phenomenon in Russia, as women became physicians, the pay and prestige went down. I come from a family of teachers. And so um, this has happened in other professions like teaching also. And so I was aware of this. Uh, My initial thoughts are, it's true. It's disturbing. And you want to understand more why. I do think uh, it has informed my understanding, knowing about it throughout, of being compensated fairly for my value and understanding my value and wanting to assure equity for all people, but specifically that starts with making sure you negotiate your contract well and know your own value. So that's my
3: initial thought on it. Um, Dr. Roerman? I would... I would absolutely agree. I, I mean, as a woman in the field of OBGYN, I think this article and Charlotte and Alicia highlighted very well that currently over 80% of people matching an OBGYN are women. Over 50% of fellows are women. You could say that that is certainly progress that you are infusing women into a field of medicine that is critical. But I would say, as you highlighted the pay gap, that's not necessarily a success. Uh, the fact that 20 years ago, the pay gap, women were making 20% less than men. And now, 20 years later, in OBGYN, women are making 25.5% less than men. I don't consider that a success. Um, and so, I think one of the questions I then land on, or the questions I land on, are your questions, are why? Um, there's a lot, I think there's a lot of different reasons for trying to explain that pay gap. I think there's just basic inequities in medicine. For example, if you were doing an endometrial biopsy in OBGYN, that makes about one and a half RVUs. If you were doing a prostate biopsy in urology, that makes eight and a half RVUs. And so you're dealing with an intrinsic imbalance out of the gate. And so if you're then saying, I'm going to be an RVU-based physician, I can't, and I'm in a predominantly female field of medicine, whereas urology is predominantly males. I think only like 8 or 10% of urologists are females. And for a biopsy for a body part, um, they're making eight times what we are for one. So somebody asked what an RVU is. It's a relative value unit. So thank you for asking that question. And that means that every time I do a procedure or a surgery, or I see a patient, it has a certain RVU attached to it. So if the system out of the gates is imbalanced, that's one thing that's absolutely going to contribute to a pay gap. And that's from the system. That's not even pointing fingers at your hospital's leadership. Or how the negotiations occurred over your contract, um, or women having families—you know—all of those. Even if you take all of those out, the system itself has basic inequities built into it. It's so interesting you brought that up. I, um,
2: for a while, I was teaching to medical students and to our residents to uh, a session how the RVU value gets set. And it goes to show the importance of really understanding the deep dive of the systems, like how, what does the RVU really mean? What is this value unit? It's based on time, expertise, risk, and different components. And then who says how much risk and time? And who's on that committee that develops that system? It's really interesting how if you keep drilling deeper, the systemic issues that underlie how we value our our output are just, um, the system might not have been created by us and nor created for us. So it's just really interesting that you bring it up. I think it's important that we understand how these systems get set up.
0: Yeah, no, thank you so much for bringing up those points. There are so many things that you mentioned that I just from a medical student point of view, I mean, I'm an M1, I didn't even know, we don't know the first thing about negotiating your contract. Um, That's not anything I ever thought about. So that's something I'm going to put in the back of my mind now and, and think about.
3: Alicia, to your point, there's 500 topics we could talk about with this. Uh, When you, when you're, if you talk about, oh, negotiating salaries and self-promotion, there's a lot of data that show that oftentimes women Mm. stop at their first offer. Um, with no questions asked. And uh, again, going back to Dr. McKean's point, knowing your worth, it's complex if you are enmeshed in a system that is intrinsically biased. So uh, I think that's one point. The other point I really would love to highlight when we're talking about this is mentorship. And when you look at the paper that you presented, and then you look at a lot of different data. Uh, And I was also talking to a colleague of mine, Jenna Romano, Dr. Romano. She is a pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon here at the University of Michigan. And she's given me permission to use her name tonight because she is one of the few pediatric cardiothoracic surgeons in the U.S. if not one of the only that is married with children. And so when you talk about mentorship, you say, why are there so few women in pediatric cardiothoracic surgery? There's a whole host of reasons. And then on top of it, where's your mentorship? Do you have anybody that looks like you, that sounds like you, that has similar missions and goals as you, that is telling you, you can do this. And so with so few women in her field, for example, there's very little mentorship saying you can do this and you can negotiate your salary and you have value.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Actually, that ties in really well into a question that we had for you um, about mentorship. So something that Charlotte and I talk about a lot is like you're saying how important it is to have female mentors, like strong women to guide you through these points in your life that you don't know what you're doing. Um, But also for women in Highly specialized fields, that's what's difficult. That's what you're saying. And I guess my question is this dichotomy that we fall into, which is okay, there's only a handful of these highly specialized women, and I would love to find a female mentor. But then the other side of it, which is it's inherently unfair to obligate someone to be a mentor to all the girls who are trying to enter a field. Or at least that's my understanding of it because I'm on the mentee end and I know people who've mentioned that to me. And so I'm wondering as two female physicians who have mentored many students, do you have any advice for seeking mentorship and how to navigate that space of, I don't know, not wanting to be maybe a burden is the closest word I can think of, I'm not sure.
3: I'm going to let Dr.
2: Berman go first.
3: This well, time. So, I think the one thing we have to acknowledge is you are talking to two people who are in uh, forward facing roles in the medical school who want to mentor and do mentor. And so, never would I think of any relationship with a student as burdensome, whether it's a uh, man, woman, non-binary student who wants to go into OBGYN or not, I I, I want to mentor. And I can't, I think of my friends and my colleagues here at Michigan and nationally, maybe it's the cohort I'm involved with, we want to mentor. So if I could impart one word of wisdom to everybody who's listening to this, irrespective of your sex or gender, it is um, people want to mentor you. And that's not just um, a set of words, that's truth. And people, uh, I mean, the system's difficult because what you're suggesting, Alicia, is you need to reach out to me. So part of the onus is on Dr. McKean and myself and student services and M-Home and your support networks at Wayne State Charlotte to say, how can we improve mentorship so we can work on that? But the one thing I would love you to eradicate from your mind today forward is that your seeking mentorship, support, guidance is burdensome in any way. Dr. McKean? Thank you. I'm glad you went first because you were much not nicer.
2: Is that a reasonable thing to say? Sorry. I, I 100% agree. I do want to throw out a term that I have recently um, come to understand and resonate with called the diversity tax and i think this applies to our minority colleagues as well that because they are in a situation where there are so few people that a lot more people migrate to the female faculty the you know, whatever component of diversity or niche that you're in where there are very few of you, that students that resonate with that story kind of migrate there. And there is some diversity tax, meaning the, the women say in ENT perhaps are mentoring more students. This is a, in theory, right? I'm not saying my my men colleagues actually mentor a ton of students too, but let's say more women would possibly come to me or uh For minorities, they may also take up a greater amount of mentorship. And that is true, it takes time. And then the mentors, no matter their good intention of what they want to do, their time may be less available to be able to provide exceptional mentorship. I'm not saying that's right or wrong or true or false in every situation, but it's something to be aware of. And I think for that reason, for everyone always, nobody's situation is 100% going to match yours. It's important to have multiple mentors. And it's important for women to mentor men, men to mentor women, all sorts of different um, uh, mentorship ce- scenarios to be arranged. I will say when I first uh, was going to negotiate my contract, I actually was mentored by a med school classmate of mine who had finished Durham residency and had taken her first academic position and it didn't work that well. And she undervalued herself and she was resentful. And then when I talked to her, she did much better on second go round and gave me all the advice on how to do it right. And so not in my own field, but still gave me a lot of pointers. That was kind of directed mentorship. And so looking broadly uh, can be very helpful, not just by somebody you think your story matches with.
1: I also think that's good advice because I know it's like hard to find. Try to find a mentor when you're not even sure you want to go into. So I think a lot of people like step back from trying to find a mentor because they're like, well, I actually don't know if I want to go into that specialty, so I don't want to waste their time by asking them about it. But really, like you said, it can be like really beneficial just to talk to someone in general.
3: Charlotte, that is a great point. Mentorship doesn't have to be in your chosen field. Mentorship doesn't have to match you or marry to you. It has to be somebody who is supportive of your current and future journeys. Um, I think what's also important is highlighting, you know, we're also obviously talking about the gender gap, not just with pay, but in leadership roles, Mm -hmm. uh, that finding people who also want to help amplify and elevate your experience into leadership roles, because that gap is profound at institutions of men versus women in leadership roles, not just at the... Hospital-based or health system level, but also in departments and divisions and chairs.
2: Oh, sorry, I was going to say there are so many topics that come up. Like every time you say one sentence, Doctor Berman, it makes me think of something else because there's just so much rich richness in this. Um, yeah, we can go. I, I will say I personally had multiple male mentors and uh, female mentors, and uh, in in multiple departments going forward, and I learned something
0: different from each of them. That gives me hope.
1: (laughs) All right, we're gonna move on to the next question. So we wanted we were wondering, wanted to ask. So when you're thinking about which specialty you wanted to go into, which factors weighed into your decision? And then how heavily did things like earnings and prestige play into that decision? And have you ever found yourself thinking about what could have happened if you had chosen a different specialty?
2: I think the most important thing for me in deciding specialty was matching. Passions, so uh, finding that I absolutely love to be in the oR but I also really loved longitudinal outpatient clinical care and procedures outpatient uh, and having a very strong woman mentor in Odo. it all matched. that was incredibly important but i i I think if I'm honest with myself subconsciously, i I do think being in a surgical field that had prestige Assigned to it was less important, but still important, if I'm really honest with myself.
3: I would echo Dr. McKean that what drew me to my field was the love of obstetrics, um, the love for um, working with women in particular, trying to improve health outcome and well-being for women in particular. Um, I also loved in obstetrics, being a surgeon and being in the office. I have a sociology background. My favorite course I've ever taken my entire life was sociology of the family here at the University of Michigan. And I feel like I practice that even as a fetal surgeon. Uh, I focus on families. With, through the reproductive course and journey. So I would say by no means was prestige part of my decision-making at all. It was an affinity for the medicine and it still is. Uh, I also never thought about the earnings per se, because I, again, I felt in medicine in general, um, although we all, all have the burden of tremendous debt, We also, for the most part, have the privilege of being physicians, irrespective of what field, um, making a strong living with good finances.
0: Yeah. Thank you both for your candor. I know it's a difficult thing to talk about, but this whole event is about candor. And I will be honest with myself, too. Like, I don't know what I want to go into, but. I feel like my background and my family and just things that have made me who I am um, do lead me to think certain ways and have like biases towards and away from certain things. So I'm just trying to navigate that and figure out how I feel and how I really feel and then how other people are telling me I should feel. So I appreciate seeing you both making it and doing well and um, being able to be the amazing physicians you are, and yet still find your passions within all of the added onuses that are placed on us.
2: And I say honestly that every once in a while, I have twinges. I loved family medicine. I loved OB. I loved everything, almost. Not everything, but almost. Um, I strongly consider family medicine too, but I love being in the OR. But every once in a while, I still have these twinges of oh gosh, why didn't I do family medicine instead of this niche subspecialty surgery? Because I mm-hmm. could have served more people. So to, to think of the second question, um, I think that's going to be inevitable for a lot of people. There are probably more than one specialty that could mm-hmm. suit many of us. And we just happen mm-hmm. to find a path that we find. Yeah.
3: I think looking at that second question, you know, what, could my life have been if I'd chosen something else? And I think you think about it. And for me, uh, you know, know, my colleagues who are in dermatology have fewer calls, fewer emergencies, for example, than I do. Their work that they do is remarkable. So I thought after a long call night, maybe I'd have fewer calls if I was in a different field of medicine. But I love being on call and, you know, I'm an academic MFM. I love working with the medical students and the residents and the fellows and the patients that come to the University of Michigan for their care. And so I'm inspired while I'm on call. And so I, I don't want to be in a different field of medicine because the call might be less arduous. I, I love the work I'm doing.
0: I love that. I actually was interested in hearing from both of you about, so granted, I'm not fully well-versed in the gender divisions of otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, but I'm wondering, um, you know, of course we know that OB is pretty female predominant and I'm not sure about OTO, but I don't think it is. And I'm just wondering both of you, if you have any perspectives of what it's been like working in a field that for Dr. Berman has been, there's been a lot of women and then maybe Dr. McKean, there's been fewer.
3: It's interesting. It's one place that, um, I think I'm supposed to be totally excited and on board and excited when people say what I'm about to say. And and I actually don't feel it because I, love, adore, respect, and revere my male partners and counterparts. And so when I'm in the operating room and the anesthesiologist and the resident are women, and I'm a woman and my resident's a woman and the scrub tech and the circulating nurse are all women, and somebody's like, look, it's an all-female OR, that's amazing. I actually find myself kind of course-correcting in the OR sometimes saying, you actually just have an amazing team irrespective of the sex of all the team members, uh, because I, I would be really acutely uncomfortable if somebody told me there was an all male OR next door and they were celebrating that. Uh, so, um, that's hard for me. And a lot of patients actually will highlight it in our operating rooms. They look around and like, Oh my gosh, look at this powerful women's team. And I'm like, it's just the right team period, irrespective of my sex. So that's one thing I would, I would like to highlight because I feel really strong about that. Um,
2: I have to be honest that I paid less attention to the gender distribution earlier on than I actually do now. Um, we at Michigan are very lucky that we've had, we had the first female Chair of otolaryngology in the country. I believe Carol was the first, and uh, she, she was my mentor. And um, we have, in general, always been ahead of the curve in uh, gender diversity in otolaryngology here at Michigan. So uh, that could be why I felt it less. Even still, we're not at even close to gender parity here. Um, I was fortunate to have great mentors we established when I was a resident, Susan Garrett. She's an uh, emeritus faculty now. She's incredible. She and I happened to just go out for martinis one day after after operating in Pizzoto and started talking about getting the ladies together and started the Glorious Ladies of Otolaryngology or GLOW group. And we get together um, periodically to support each other and talk. Um, and because there are some unique aspects about being a woman in a, a male predominant field, um, it's just nice to get together and hang out and talk. And and uh, we have a great group of supportive faculty and to share discussions like how to negotiate or uh, pay equity. I heard Dr. Berman say, it's not just about pay. What about resources? That's also where I see big gaps. Um, that we don't get the same resources mm-hmm. assigned to us to become successful like team support, like administrative assistance support and things like that. So um, sometimes we we talk about shared resources and things and it's just, it's a nice group to be in. I don't think that answers the question. I also have had incredible uh, male mentors in the field. I will say when I started in a niche specialty of skull base surgery, um, There's an otolaryngologist at the University of Pittsburgh, Carl Snyderman, who has had specifically, I I believe, kind of sought me out and realized we have a gap in women leadership nationally. And he really mentored me and brought me along the way into leadership and wanted to do courses with me on the national level and things like that. And I give great credit to the people um, that bring us forward. And I'd like to do that for, for other people going forward.
3: You do do it, Dr. McKean.
2: You too.
0: Yay, you do. You guys are both amazing. <laughs> um, that's wonderful. I, we have one more like pre-planned question that we did want to ask. So um, in the article, it mentions that women often provide better care to patients because they do things like spend more time with each patient and emotionally support their patients Those are just specific things that the article mentioned, Um, but some would describe these things as highly associated with femininity. Um, However, there's also this culture of downplaying femininity and being more tough or just taking it um, that that still exists in the medical field. And in our podcast, we talk a lot about femininity and how it intersects with medicine um, and how we manifest our own femininity. And so we were wondering how you have experienced femininity and, or expressed your femininity through your work, whatever that means for you.
3: So I find myself when I hear that question, first of all, trying to say, how would I define femininity? I think that would be the first important step in answering that question because. And maybe, you know, people are going to rake me over the coals for saying what I'm about to say, but that is not an integral part of how I view myself as a physician. I view myself and my experience as a physician, as a physician who's advocating for women and family and students and education, not because of my femininity. And so it's actually not uh, something that I can easily answer. I think if you take the word femininity out of your question, which is what, not what you're asking me to do, but, um, if you put in the word, how has your experience as a woman been expressed uh, or been experienced, that feels different to me because I certainly can say, I have been a woman 35 weeks pregnant operating with a neuropathy Scared to to, to speak up to comrades in the operating room. In other words, because I worried I will be viewed as lazy or less committed. So that's not my femininity. That's me being a woman in a surgical field, uh, in a training arena. So that I have felt more heavily than me experiencing femininity. That
2: really resonates with me. I think it's interesting how words carry so much weight So I identify, while I identify as a feminist, I somehow have never identified as being feminine. If that makes, not that I am opposed to it. I just, I kind of identify non-binary in many ways. Like, um, so anyway, I, I completely resonate with that. Words hold a lot of weight. And I think Dr. Berman and I, when we were growing up, feminine kind of had this very typical over-the-top and masculine. They they were very different than I think we use the terms now. And so I think that plays into me not identifying with feminine, if that makes sense, um, and more identifying with being a woman who operated when my kid was two weeks old because I had imposter syndrome. Like, I needed to be just as awesome as those boys, and I needed to get my name out there, and I needed to, you know, it was my ego, really, but it was ego and imposter syndrome all rolled into one, so you put these, I kind of did a talk for our Skull-Based Society recently about the diversity tax of a lot of expectations of people's eyes are on you and looking to you. And then put in the corner, the other corner, I've got this triangle diversity tax, and then in another triangle, imposter syndrome, where we just feel like we don't fit in because we don't see anybody like us and we're not doing it right. And then we have that feeling and guilt. And then on the other corner, this obsessive compulsiveness and perfectionism and wanting to do it right. And that is just a triangle of burnout. It just pushes us to the edge. And I think you see that a lot in women in male-dominated fields too, um, that we skyrocket Mm -hmm. towards burnout really quick. And then when you look at the pipeline coming into, say, otolaryngology, we have 50-50 men and women. But as you go up the list, the AAMC data is out there to look. As you go from clinical lecturer to assistant professor to associate professor to professor in academic medicine, the numbers just it down. And there are a lot of factors that go into that.
1: I wanted to bring up a point from the chat that someone made, which I think is really important. Someone asked what makes certain actions feminine? Is it outdated to tie traditional or socially designated roles of women or men for that matter? I think this is important because I think it's part of the question too, is a lot of female dominated specialties like pediatrics or OB? People are pushed to go into them because, oh, you're so caring. You love children and family so much. Like Things that would previously be very feminine um, roles, I guess. And then women aren't pushed towards roles that are more men dominated, like more male and have more of a masculine, like hardworking, competitive things that are tied to what society expects from us. And I think that's the problem that the paper highlighted a lot is that those Ideas shouldn't even be on a specialty. All specialties are difficult. All of them are challenging and competitive and important. And we shouldn't be tying different perspectives about what a woman or a man or anyone of any gender should be as they go into that role. I think you guys made a good point of that too, in that you don't see your femininity or like you being feminine as part of being a physician. Because I think you're right. Like you, if you, Alicia and I talk about femininity in that. It's whatever we think of ourselves. It doesn't have to be like you're this or that. It's just however we view ourselves as mm-hmm. a woman in general. Um, and I think that's kind of the points that you're making when you talk about what it's like to be a woman in medicine.
3: I, I also think marrying that question with one of the next questions that's down in the chat, what I would like to highlight is to Dr. McKean's point, currently um, a fair amount of leadership positions are held by men. And so if that's still the case today, you know, a number of growing, uh, a growing number of academic institutions across the cross country are developing policies and procedures that ensure pay equity from the start. And so if you're saying, what can men do? There are many people who are men in leadership positions, ensure pay equity from the start. Be transparent about the AAMC benchmark data. And so, Alicia, you asked, well, how do you... Negotiate. Well, ideally, you have people in leadership that are transparent with their people that they're hiring and interviewing with their new recruits that say, here's our double AMC benchmark data. Um, And so I guess that's also the onus is not just on the leadership, but those of us that are in divisions and departments. You know, what role can we play as we are interviewing and hiring people? We can say, hey, can we be more transparent about? um benchmarks and goals and current pay inequities. But let me be honest, it's really hard to do. And particularly if you haven't been mentored and there aren't people who are welcoming to that, my friends and colleagues here and through the country struggle with that.
0: Alicia, do you want oh, to, yes, up absolutely. to other questions? I would love to. I just can't see any of the questions. <laughs>
1: okay. So I want to start with the first question that came up and bring it back to our topic of mentorship earlier. Um, And one person asked, what role do you think men could play in helping women reach equality? And do you think there is any incentive for that to happen?
2: I think there are internally, it's my great hope that even though sometimes there are negative Models out there. I think there are a lot of positive models, and it's my great hope that there are great men, women, uh, non-binary, all kinds of people um, out there that are willing to bring along others. That's my great hope. Um, So I think there's a huge role for men sharing uh, with women. I think there's a big role for those of us who are uh, define ourselves as white to turn over leadership roles and opportunities to. Um, Black, Indigenous, and other people of color too. So I think this is, we talk about intersectionality. Yes, I think there's a role for all of us to think about how we can make the world better through taking opportunities and through not taking opportunities and letting others take
3: those roles. I think also just Having these conversations and having these spaces to talk about this in a non-confrontational but uh, open arena, like Charlotte and Alicia have created, I think is incredibly important. But not, you know, having another one and then another one and having different topics that you talk about. I think of uh, radiology is a really interesting field of medicine, and they are some they are a field of medicine who's made remarkable headway. Um, it like 10 years ago, female radiologists were making 20% less than male radiologists today by the data it's equal. What's particularly interesting is if you then tease out the data in there, radiology has more female professors and more women in leadership, uh, than any other medical specialty. So that isn't happenstance. And so it only kind just takes one. I was talking again with Dr. Romano, the pediatric CT surgeon, who was saying she uh, has been using her voice at their national meetings, talking about the fact of what does it look like to be a female thoracic surgeon, a female pediatric CT surgeon who wants to have a family, uh, who wants to be married, who's dealt with infertility. So again. She is creating space to have these candid conversations so that these issues are not stigmatized and that there are trainees who go to these national meetings and say, Oh my gosh, I could become a CT surgeon and have a family if I want. How do you do that? What does it look like to harvest your eggs? When do you do that? And she's putting those conversations on the table at these meetings in sessions, just like talking about. Surgical approaches to the who knows what in the chest. I don't operate up there.
1: I think you were saying that leads into the next question, too, of how do we gain financial literacy as we negotiate salaries going into those positions?
2: I I hope we can continue to do a better job uh, teaching that in medical school later in in your medical school training and also throughout residency programs. Uh, as people go to, to negotiate their their jobs, I, I do think currently it requires mentorship and specific mentorship about contracts, where to find information on pay, whether it be academic, private practice, what level, what subspecialty, what hours you're working, as well as how to find, which don't exist, by the way, um, comparables for resources, for what teams look like. And I think that's going to be the next uh, barrier. So even when we hit pay equity, I fear we won't hit resource equity. Because of being seen as more feminine, I will say this, this is what I believe. (laughs) I could get in trouble for this, but that's all right. I believe sometimes we as women are, are given fewer resources because the assumptions we can do it. I'm giving less nursing help to help do that high touch patient phone call than perhaps my male colleagues, not intentionally, but there's just a lot of assumptions that perhaps our administrative assistants will do for other people that they don't even think to do for us. It's unconscious bias. I'm not saying it's purposeful, but there are things in the department, there are roles I'm asked to play and things I'm asked to do that other people are not. There are resources that I have to go fight for and ask for that other people don't. And that's going completely off the topic, but mentorship's important.
0: No, Dr. McKean, we talk about that all the time about how women are expected to be these resilient humans and just take it and handle it. Um, and so it's interesting that you bring that up. Um, not that I was expecting it to be any different, but it kind of is like another grounding thing about being a woman in medicine. is the expectation to be resilient and to be able to handle it all and having to navigate that. Yeah. Um, We are almost out of time.
1: So I'm going to ask one more question that's come up a couple times in the chat. So we've talked a lot about how female physicians are viewed by other physicians in the field or maybe by leadership, but how do you handle how you may be viewed by your patients? Because I think there's still patients who think a certain way about what a physician should be or they have their own ideas about what a female physician is going to look like. So maybe, what have your experiences been with this, and how have you handled them?
2: I've definitely had my fair share of describing in detail a very complicated surgical procedure and the background, you know, history of this type of cancer that's one in a million, and and that, and then the patient or family member saying. So who's the surgeon? <laughs> like, what's, who's going to do my surgery? I, you know, It it's happens many times. It happens less the older I've, I've gotten. Uh, quite honestly, it happened a lot more as a young woman. It, it, my, my job as a physician, I, from patients, I take it well because they're in a vulnerable situation and my job is to be their doctor. So I'll just say that's me. And that's what we've been talking about this whole time because I, I don't know their background. I don't know where they're coming from. Uh, we just handle that well. I've never had anybody refuse me doing their operation because I'm a woman. Um, I have had situations where I felt that I have been slightly harassed, and I have had to tell people that's not acceptable or I'm your physician. Um, If they tell you about like how you look, I I take compliments if they like my outfit. Sometimes, you know, I find it still a little bit shady, but I give them an out. Um, Again, happens less the older I get. One advantage of age.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think all of these questions are really complex and they have a lot of layers to them as well. So I appreciate you taking this time to unpack it a little bit and share your experiences because, of course we are on the opposite end of this journey. And so seeing where it can go and where we could end up um, is really insightful and we really appreciate it. But I want to be respectful of everyone's time. And so we are going to wrap up. But before I do that, I just want to thank you both again, Dr. McKean and Dr. Berman for taking the time to be here with us and having these difficult conversations. They have been truly amazing. And it's been Wonderful to sit down and talk about things that are difficult to talk about.
2: Thank you so much. What a cool opportunity. I would I'd love doing this.
3: Thank you. This was really special. You're both awesome. Keep doing what you're doing. Use your voice. Keep doing it.
1: Thank you. We also wanted to thank um, University of Michigan Medical School M Home and Wayne State's AMWA for helping sponsor the event. If you have Enjoyed today's discussion, and you want to learn more about women in medicine and women in healthcare, and how they are affected by medical history and current events? Then you can check out our podcast, which is from Skirts to Scrubs. Um, it's available on all podcasting apps, and we also have an Instagram and a Facebook page, um, which is at From Skirts to Scrubs. And you can check out a lot of updates about our show on there. And then also there's the website where you can find the article and the answers to the
0: questions. Yes. And to close up the event today, we are just going to end in the way that we end all of our episodes, which is by giving a shout out to the women who fought for us to be where we are today. And may we do the same for those who come after us. Thank you so much, everyone.
2: Thank you.